0: And thank you for joining us today. And I hope you'll find an interesting and informative discussion. We are talking, my name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University of Brisbane. And today we're very fortunate to have a very busy man, Professor of Infectious Diseases, Public Health, Preventative Medicine, and Ophthalmology from the Oregon Health and Science University of the US, Professor Kevin Winthrop, who's one of the world's leading ID physicians. And uh, he is also a committee steering committee member of the CSF Forum. And today we're talking about his paper published towards the end of last year in rheumatology therapy on the clinical management of herpes zoster in patients with RA and PSA receiving TOFA therapy. And uh, this is an accumulation of 21 RA clinical trials and three PSA trials. Thank you and, wel- and welcome and thanks for joining us, Kevin. Yeah,
1: thanks, Peter. Great to see you.
0: All right. so. Let's talk a little bit about how you did this study with all those uh, different papers and as a post hoc analysis.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think it was uh, some of us sitting around the table thinking, uh, boy, maybe we need to do a final, a final look at uh, zoster with TOFA across indications over, you know, many, many years and uh You know, I think at that point there'd been, you know, approval and multiple indications and, you know, development programs and multiple indications. So, you know, the idea was to look at people with arthritis, this is RA and PSA, and of course there's lots of RA studies here, I think you mentioned uh, 21 kind of phase two, phase three, uh, three slash four uh, LTE studies, and then um, three PSA studies also uh, from the clinical trial development program. So so these were all, you know, again, phase two through four studies, clinical trials. Uh, We had a lot of uh, patients here uh, to look at over a long time period. So that was the the nature of the beast.
0: Okay, and uh, you've selected TOFA, but do you really think there'll be any difference between TOFA and the other Jacks? Maybe Philgo, but UPA and Barry, about the same? Or do you think it's it's more li- likely to be an issue with one jack compared to another jack.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you just you just summarized it well. I think. I mean, we we obviously just looked at TOFA because this was TOFA clinical development program data. Um, but as you mentioned, we've seen the same thing in the development programs for individual disease indications for all the jacks, uh, except maybe Philgo. And again, of course, Philgo is done much later in time a little bit different regions of enrollment too in their phase two program, although their phase three program was very similar. So uh, we'll just have to see where that goes. I think it's an open question that that perhaps Philgo is um, less risky than the others, but but we'll have to see. Okay.
0: So you've got data on something like 7,000 RA patients. I was interested to see that zero vaccination in this collection of patients. Is that what's happening in the US now? Yeah,
1: I mean, unfortunately, I think in most of these studies, you know, vaccination history wasn't collected. Um, And and some of that was just because way back when in the early studies, we didn't even know we should do it. And then, of course, later we wanted to do it, uh, but maybe hadn't gotten it implemented in the protocol time and then, you know, it was very clear from other studies that very few people had been vaccinated anyway. And in a lot of these countries where these patients are being enrolled, there, there isn't even access to vaccination. So so my suspicion would be that very few people in this um, experience has, have been vaccinated. Um, now, I, I do know the vaccine rates are, are up here, you know, in the US the last, uh, you know, five years. I, I forget when Jeff Curtis, I did a look, six or eight years ago and it was like 4% of patients with RA or, or who are eligible had been vaccinated. Now I do know it's much higher and I think it's probably more like 20 or 25% now, but that be uh, that's without a formal look at the issue, but, but it is uh, an unmet need still certainly.
0: Okay, and so some of the numbers, you'd look at 7,000 RA patients, 11% got Zoster. That's about 3.6 per 100 patient years, which is what you've published previously around the planet. But only two percent had a history of past zoster. Do you think it's worth asking patients about a history of past zoster, and would it change the way we use vaccination or or different therapies? Is is a history helpful?
1: Yeah, it's a good good question. I mean, what was interesting, I think, you know, preface my answer would be that that there are these people in this experience that develop recurrent events. So it was highest in RA. I think it was about 8% of individuals actually had more than one zoster, event. Uh, that sounds bad, Kevin. That sounds a that? lot. That sounds yeah. a lot to
0: recurrent
1: zoster. Yeah, that's, that's a lot, right? I mean, normally it's uh, much less than 1% in the general population would have a recurrent <laughs> event in their life. So it's definitely elevated uh, and the risk was lower in PSA. I think it was three or 4%, about half that had recurrent events. Um, you know, certainly in other Jack programs, usually it's been kind of three to 5% somewhere in that range that have recurrent events. Depending on the indication, most of that's RA data. So so it is interesting. I, I have come to believe that that group that has recurrent events is just somehow different and they are not building, you know, when they have their event, they, for whatever reason, don't build protective immunity long-term from their event uh, versus, you know, the, most people do. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, what we've seen in modeling some of the data from the other programs, and you, you were involved in some of those studies, you know, we've, we've seen prior zoster as a risk for later getting zoster once they've gone into a JAK inhibitor trial or, you know, started being exposed to a JAK inhibitor. Um, and that that would not be usual. Again, you know, if you've had Zoster before, probably you're, you're protected for some time. But again, there, there is some subset of people who uh, just don't seem to build immunity from that um, from that experience. So I, you know, in most of these Jack programs now, yeah, it does seem like, you know, if you've had Zoster before, and you're going to go on a Jack and Heather, that that is a risk factor. Um, and, you know, that's someone I would I would think about um, certainly vaccinating before they go on to um, a, a jacanib or, or really probably anything else. Uh, but, but that is, it is part of the history, certainly.
0: So that's a good question. Does being on steroids, being on methotrexate, having diabetes, do they add appreciably to the risk in these in this analysis?
1: Um, I think yeah you know, there was a paper published last year from the rabbit registry that that looked nicely across all biologics and and Jackson. And certainly steroids was a huge risk factor if you were on 10 milligrams or more steroids the risk was uh, just as great as it was independently with the jack inhibitor so um, there's no question that that. In my mind, you know, concomitant steroids or steroids alone are risk. Now, as you know, and you're probably asking a question. Some of the studies we've done together with other jacks we haven't seen concomitant steroids adding to the, the risk that we're seeing with the JAK inhibitor, uh, whereas we have seen that with tofacitinib and some other studies where there is kind of additive risk. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's something to the idea that if, if the one risk factor is so strong, if you add another risk factor to that risk factor. Sometimes you don't really see much change because, because the initial risk factor is so strong, it kind of covers up your ability uh, statistically to see much difference when you add another risk factor, particularly when you're underpowered. So so I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain with like UPA, for example, why we didn't see steroids combined with UPA at more risk than UPA alone, but I don't know. We didn't. It's it's hard to believe that steroids don't add to the risk because every other study uh, has has shown that. And um, and again, I think that the real world data would also suggest that as well.
0: And methotrexate?
1: You know, in terms of real world data, we don't really see an increased risk. In terms of you know, the the jack development programs that that we've all been involved with. I mean, we we haven't seen methotrexate really add to risk. We did initially in the TOFA program in RA, but we were uh, you know, we just weren't really powered to to be able to discern what the independent risk was. And once we we were, you know, we had enough person years of exposure, et cetera, you know, methotrexate kind of washed out as something that was causing independent risk. And it, most of the additive risk we were seeing at that point was was from the steroids. So um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly think jacks are king when it comes to causing shingles and steroids are probably of a similar risk if they're at a high enough dose. You know, once you're talking about doses of five and 2.5, you know, the dose um, yep. the dose effect is real. The, the risk is much lower at those levels.
0: The other thing I noted from your paper that there was a lot of 45 to 65-year-olds, was that just a numbers game? Or do you think the risk because of their disease and therapy goes down to as young an age as 45. Our, our government will only give free Vax to people over 70.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think they're going to have to change, of course, because the labels for the vaccines are changing, at least for Shingrix. Um, and it has in Europe and the US that you know you can give it down to 18. There's kind of a, and, and it's recommended by now CDC to give it down to 18 in immunocompromised patients. With the big, you know, asterisk saying there's very little data, and no one's really studied it outside of a couple niche immunocompromised areas. So there's not much data in, in the world of rheumatology where we inhabit. Of course, we're all, you and I and others are working on, on that and trying to do some studies to, to better understand how best to use Shingrix in this setting. But, but I definitely think, you know, if you look at this paper that was published and if you look at other studies, uh, you know, patients with RA or certainly vasculitis and other things, they, they're at much higher risk, even down to the age of, you know, 20 to 30. I mean, their risk could be as high as, you know, your average uh, 60-year-old who doesn't have those conditions. So, you know, I think there's good rationale to offer vaccine to, to those younger cohorts. Um, if they have immu- immunosuppressive diseases or if they're using jack and for example.
0: Yeah, just to clarify, the TGA, which means you can prescribe it, anyone immunocompromised. It's only the reimbursement issue from the PBSC. So uh-huh. just to clarify that up. The yeah. other thing's a bit concerning, 7% had post neuralgia, and of the zosters, one in three were severe. So, you know, these guys didn't just have... You know, most had mild to moderate, but there are patients who get stuck with posthepetic and really have had a severe bout.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's worth noting. I mean, I, I guess in general, though, 7% is, is actually probably half of what it is in the general population. So there is this idea, Peter, that you know, these drugs, while they may cause zoster, they're probably less likely to result in uh, PHN. And I think this data would support that. Um, but to your point, it's still 7% and they could still have a pretty bad trip. So it, it does reinforce the need to try to prevent this. Um, but I, I do think it's probably lower than what we see in the general population where it's more like 10 to 15%. Um, but you know what was interesting too is you know, most of these patients, were they stayed on the TOFA during this and, and almost all of them, if I recall, were given antivirals too. So I think it it speaks the idea that you can manage these events by, you know, antivirals with or without temporary drug inter- interruption with tofa or whatever jack inhibitor you're talking about. Um, but I, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I think that's why we wanted to 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 review this experience as well, just to see exactly how those meds were handled during the events and to see if it seemed to make any difference. And it, it didn't seem to make a difference when we we looked at people who stopped tofa versus didn't stop tofa or you know, used an antiviral, it didn't. But of course, that's all retrospective data. You can't really answer those questions without a prospective study. But suffice it to say, um, it does elucidate at least uh, or highlight how these cases were managed.
0: And I, yeah, I agree, you uh, only had to change treatment in 9% of people in these studies. So yeah. the rest stopped for a couple of weeks, went back on and continued. So that's quite helpful to know. Also, the PSA guys, Almost like a half of the risk of everything that the RA people had, you know, one point eight per hundred patient years. Also zero vax, only three percent severe, five percent history of uh, zoster. So PSA clearly a lesser risk.
1: Yeah, and I mean, obviously some of that was age driven. Um, some of it's probably driven by a lesser concomitant uh, immunosuppressive use. Um, but but definitely age plays a huge role there. So.
0: Yeah. So that sounds like uh, what we should do is be aware, vaccinated if we can. What take-home messages would you like to give from this particular study?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think I I think the take-home message is, you know, similar to what we've we've concluded about Jackson General. If you're going to put someone on a jack, you ought to try to vaccine them before you do it. Um, and if you can't do it after they've started the jacket rear, and I hope to come back in a year to tell you how best to do that based on the results of our study uh, and several others that are ongoing. But you know, I think another take home message is is that you know you probably ought to put these patients on antiviral therapy. Um, that may or may not, but probably decreases the risk of PHN if you promptly start that. Uh, and that, you know, as long as it's not serious, you, you probably don't have to discontinue the TOFA. So I, like I said, most of these cases weren't serious and a lot of them didn't, the majority didn't discontinue their TOFA. I, I certainly advocate generally doing it uh, if there's anything more than, you know, a monodermatomal experience going on uh, doing it, meaning I, I'd start antivirals and probably stop your TOFA for a few days. Um, but clearly this experience suggests that for most cases they're mild or moderate and you don't have to do that so but again antivirals were used in almost everyone so you know if you took antivirals out of the picture you know how how TOFA management in the context of an an outbreak would make a difference I I don't really know.
0: Yeah interesting I what do you think of Zostavax? the study that said it really wasn't particularly protective I've given up on Zostavax and tried to talk everybody into Shindrix and give them a script for antiviral to keep in their cupboard.
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly the patients I see clinically that this three to 8% that are having these recurrent events. I mean, those are people I put on, I either you know say to the rheumatologist, Hey, you should switch them to different medicine, or we should just put them on a suppressive antiviral therapy. So I give people two events and if they've had two, then then I've decided they're not they're not really protecting themselves. If they're gonna stay on the jack, I'll just put them on antiviral. I mean, that's how I handle handle that group. You know, as far as Zostavax, I think if I lived in a place that still had Zostavax, did not have shingles, I would use Zostavax. I do think it gives some probably short-term immune boost, but you'd have to, of course, you wouldn't wanna use it when someone's actively on a jack. You'd wanna use it before they, they get on the jack. Um, and we, you know, we did do a study showing it was safe to use with TNF blockers. So I think you know, for, for countries that don't have the Shingrix yet, it, it could still be a useful tool for, for the short-term. And then once you get Shingrix, then of course you'd wanna use that.
0: So thank you so much, Kevin, um, for your time. If you'd like to know more about this paper, I recommend you read it. It's very instructive about uh, a common issue, puts things in perspective and gives us some clear guidance on what we should do with our patients. Uh, other papers upload to the CSF website this month. You can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section of cytokinesibling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and other podcast media that you use and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thanks very much for your time, Kevin. I'll let you get back to work.
1: You bet. It's great to see you, Peter, as always. Hope to, hope to meet up with you in 2022.
0: Copenhagen, Eula. See you there.
1: You got it. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>